Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It is good to be with you. Please like, share, review, subscribe to, and comment on Relentless Truth. Comment on social media, share with your friends. Go to johnwarrenmedia.com for more information or to contact us through our contact form. You can reach me at john at johnwarrenmedia.com. Our sponsor is CFS Financial. CFS Financial can also be found on a tab at johnwarrenmedia.com. We are a full-service consulting firm working with both for-profit, non-profit companies on debt resolution, on funding new projects, strategic planning, and financial management, all aspects of those topics. Again, johnwarrenmedia.com for more information. It is a treat today to, again, have my wife, Connie, with us. Welcome back. Thank you. And she is the secret weapon of our family, as you're about to learn. This is part three in our look at God's economics. We talked in our first episode on this topic several weeks ago about some big picture economic principles and issues that go on in our country. And then last week, We talked about God's economy. We uh, talked about some references in scripture and perspectives that scripture gives us. Today, we're going to continue that theme, but we're going to talk about some very practical things. And and I'm going to get Connie to answer interview style questions, and I'll try not to interrupt a lot, but I will from time to time just to kind of keep the conversation going but this is really about her knowledge and experience, and I think that'll benefit all of us as we kind of walk through this very practical discussion. So so tell everyone, if you would, just start with what is it that we're going to talk about today? What do you think will be helpful for families to hear from us in this episode? Well, uh, today I'm focusing a little bit more on the moms and, and wives in the home. And uh, I know you'll bring a, a, a husbandly perspective in, but um, how to create a home that is nurturing and developing. There was a baby shower that I did a little devotional for. And one of the things that I talked about was we are raising warriors in God's army raising up little disciples who will hopefully know, trust, and love the Lord more than their very lives. Let us as sisters in Christ be committed to living lives that will encourage, edify, and point each other and the children we are entrusted with to our Heavenly Father. And so today I hope to talk about some practical ways to do that. I just want to let everyone know that I am in my 60s. So oh, you didn't have to do that. I had a lot. I had a lot of years to learn many hard lessons, and so I'm just hoping to really encourage Good. women out there. And, and to- just just so everybody knows, when you read that just now, that from that devotional, and your voice quivered, it's not because you're nervous. 
it's because of the beauty of that truth. And, mm. and you did this when we were talking about this episode, you did this with me yesterday. It's an awesome opportunity and, and responsibility. So I'm going to just ask some general questions. First, what would you say is the foundation of the Christian family, according to scripture? Well, there are many places that you can find this, but I would go to Ephesians where it talks about just the structure of the family. You know, it's also talking about the structure of the church, but wives are to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. And then children are to obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right. So scripture tells us the perfect way that a home is to be structured in its authority and the way it's to be run. And when we veer from that, we lose the safety and that nurturing environment that God meant for children to have. It is the first place that children are going to learn biblical principles and biblical values. Now, you you kind of got me all excited because I thought there for a second that I get to be the dictator then uh, since you read that. But then then on down, it, it talks about the man loving his wife as Christ loved the church. That doesn't sound like I'm a dictator at all. In fact, when you think about how Christ loved the church, there's one complete sacrificial living that is characterized by love, uh, meaning this sense of self-sacrifice to meet the needs of the loved person. That means agape love, right? With with the, the kind that is without reciprocation, without regard even for reciprocation. And so, guys, we have a very difficult... When you read that scripture, I can just imagine some people thinking, well, wait a minute, this is modern America. You used words like authority and subject to and, and all, all, all these things that sound onerous. For women, what about the men? And so I believe that when we study all of scripture, all of the references that you just alluded to that talk about this topic, the man's responsibility is much more significant, much more selfless, much more giving than we tend to think. Oh, it absolutely is. And it's more giving than we tend to naturally be able to live without trusting God and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And wives, pray for your husband. Pray for him. He has such a difficult job in this world. The modern, the structure of this modern world that we live in is so against families that we have to do everything in our power to strengthen families. I I think so many parents are afraid to parent because they want to be their child's friend. And that isn't a biblical model, especially, you know, through their younger years. You know, you can develop a different relationship once they're a young adult and, and out of your home, but... Yeah, and as you're as you're saying that, I think about our lives and and our daughter Sarah, who is an amazing young lady. But I think about the other families that we know, uh, many many families who have had uh, some of the struggles we've had and and other struggles. 
this is a podcast episode that is a, a very simple, straightforward format. If you listen to this and we hit a nerve, we'd love to have the opportunity to give you more information about the the biblical view of the family, because it is a difficult one. If this was a sermon series, it'd be a 10-part series oh. and still not cover all of the information. So talk about, if you would, though, this foundation of the Christian family still Talk about that in some very practical ways. How is it to actually work? Well, first, I'd like to say, believe me, we have learned some of these lessons through trial and error, and we have not been perfect in it. But we have learned some good lessons that we hope will encourage you and just help you along the way. But, you know, the home should be the safest and best environment to foster biblical training for our children. It should be the center of the family's work, productivity, training, not just a place to drop your backpack, sleep, and recharge. So many families don't even have family meals together. So probably just a big overview would just be to be sure that as a family, you're doing meals together, you're doing recreation together together. You're fellowshipping and offering hospitality together. It should be a place where church hospitality is integral so that your children are learning those values from you and seeing you live those out. So you're saying employ hospitality to your church through your home. Through, and, exactly. and letting your children watch you model this. Yes, you mentioned safe. The home is the safest. Talk about what that means just for a minute. What do you have in mind when you say that, that home is safe? Because you hear so much talk about safe spaces on university campuses and the oh, like, you do. But, but you're talking about something else, but you're talking about raising well-adjusted children. Yes. I'm talking about it being, I guess the word that comes to mind is safe haven, that when your child comes home, if you're not homeschooling, if they come home from school or come home from a play date or an activity, once they get old enough to do that, that your home is a place that they know they are protected, they are loved, they can talk to you about anything. That was one thing that we kept telling our daughter, all right, you know, over and over again. No matter what you hear, no matter what you've seen, whatever you're thinking, if you have questions about anything, come to us and we will tell you the truth. We will talk about anything with you that you want to talk about. And I think that that is so critical. Parents are so afraid to talk to their children about drugs, sex. If you don't, if you don't, tell them the truth about those things, they will hear it from somebody that you probably don't necessarily want them to learn about those things from. So I think that there's nothing that's off limit. There are no questions that can't be asked. There are no struggles that can't be dealt with. And I think that they need to see you authentically dealing with struggles. They learn repentance and forgiveness and going back to the foot of the cross by watching you, not by listening to you preach at them, but by watching you live that out. 
And that concept scares every parent who just heard it because it's an ominous, ominous responsibility. And it's one we carry out imperfectly, isn't it? It is. But think about it. Do you listen to people who just tell you one thing and live another way? And they will be the ones that will see you do that every single day. But God's grace is sufficient, and it will keep you on your knees. Right. Well, talk about, though, for parents who are hearing that, and they think, well, that sounds really undisciplined. It sounds like a free-for-all. It sounds like even the word safe space or safest environment. How, how do you balance the need for standards, and I know you do this well, but I live with you and I know, and I've watched this over all these years. And believe me, that's not a weakness in this home. But how do you balance that need for discipline with this sense of inclusion and safety and openness? Well, I think first I'd like to talk about, and then I'll go right into that, but Titus 2 talks about some attributes that wives are to have. And they're to be pure, they're to be workers at home, and that doesn't mean that a wife can't work outside of home, but it means that her priority is her home and the running of that home. They're to be kind, and they're to be subject to their own husbands, as we read about in Ephesians. But there has to be order and structure in your home, obviously. You need to be sure that you plan meals and base your grocery list off those planned meals. But I think a wonderful thing, and that's just one example, but a wonderful thing to do is to include your children in that. Once they get old enough to start learning those skills, they can learn how to cook. They can learn how to fold clothes. Getting them to be a part of the household. They are an integral part of your household. They're not just a person that comes in and is fed and bathed and etc., but they're actually part of the working household. Think back to, you know, the little house on the prairie days. The whole family had to work together to make the household run and so that everyone could eat. I think we've lost a lot of the beauty in that and that each member of the household doesn't necessarily feel like they're a valuable part of this home. Mm. And I think if you really focus on trying to get that back through family devotions, family meals. Now you can't you might not be able to do family meals every night, especially if you have teenagers, but at least one to two days a week having a family meal together is so critical, I think, to maintaining this unit that doesn't become just fragmented people going in and out of a door. What do you do if, and I have a bias against some of these instruments, although in grad school, I studied them in a class called Organizational Behavior and Development, and I like some of them, but the stereotype is Myers-Briggs and Enneagram and all, all those things. And the things you talked about require some organization and planning and some effort. What would you say to parents who struggle in that regard, they're more creative, they're more expressive, they're more into their feelings, and they just aren't as structured as you would imply that they need to be. What are some practical ways to work on that? How do you how do you become that nucleus for the family when maybe it's just kind of naturally not your thing? 
Well, I don't know that that is natural to a lot of people. I think those are learned tasks. So, I, I so think you're you saying learn. don't be discouraged. Oh, no. If it's not a natural thing for you. Not at all. Because coming into it, a lot of people, I mean, there are probably some that don't. I know some people who just live really rigid, disciplined lives, but it's something that can be learned and worked on. Well, living a rigid, disciplined life is different than organizing a home and planning. So I, I believe that I don't believe that there's anyone who cannot learn how to plan. And it might take a little more effort from you. There's plenty of tools on the internet that you can print out for free. Lists, your, you know, smartphones, you can do almost every, you know, all kinds. But you, you have to keep lists. You actually have to set aside time to do the planning and some of the structure. doesn't mean you have to live night and day by structure, structure, structure. The other thing, I didn't answer your question about discipline and standards. I think there are many places in the Bible that teach about discipline and standards for your children. Discipline is very different than punishment. And I think so many parents have leaned on just punishing. Discipline actually means, when you look at biblical discipline, it's training it's teaching. That's what that word means. And that takes more time. It's more time consuming. That's what we are instructed to do as parents is to discipline. Now, punishment may go along with discipline sometimes, but discipline is the primary thing. We're to be teaching and training our children how to act, you know, how to be self-controlled, how to be kind, how to be all those virtues that God wants us to be, that's what we're to be training our little children and our teenagers to do. Now, you have a way, a style that I'm jealous of. It's the ability to know when to wade in. And, and, and I'm, I'm thinking of middle and high school years right now. And maybe I'm thinking of elementary too, but I'm thinking of those formative years you kind of had a way of knowing this rises to a level where safety is not my first concern, <laughs> where this requires some hands-on parenting. And then you also artfully knew and know still today, our daughter's 23 years old and still requires some, I don't know whether I'd call it traditional parenting, but input from us. And you have such a good way of knowing how to do that. When, I'm kind of more black and white, I think, in that regard sometimes. And you, you sort of have a, an ability to look at the need of the child and the needs of the child. What can you say in that regard that would be helpful to parents? How do you develop that? How do you? Wow, I'm not sure I, I deserve that. Is that. it by knowing the child well? Yeah, I, I, when you said that, I thought how grateful I was to have the opportunity to homeschool Sarah. We did not start out homeschooling, and there are many parents who don't have that option, and and that's fine too. But when Sarah started the fifth grade, we brought her home and started homeschooling. And I I think just having all that time with her and, and really knowing what her strengths and weaknesses were, and there are other ways to learn that if your child is going to school. But you have to take the time to do that. And prayer. I mean, you have to spend time praying for your children. 
and asking God for their salvation if they're not saved, how wisdom to parent, because you definitely need that. But also, I think, developing traditions in the home and listening. If you have a chance to, you know, if they do sports or, you know, whatever, I used to drive for soccer practice. If you can be the driver, you will learn so much about the people that your children (laughs) are around. Because when you're driving that car, as many of you know that have done it, you become invisible. And they just start talking about everything that they would never talk about in front of you. Yep. And when I hear you talk about this, it sounds like what you're saying is, Although we do it imperfectly, invest the time in them. You have to. To know them. You have, there's nothing. And I think middle school and high school, this is what I have seen consistently. And when I taught, I saw it in the students that I taught. Parents tend to pull away when their children start to develop in middle school and high school. And that is where you need to lean in the hardest almost in a different way than when they're younger, but they need you almost more in high school than they did when they were toddlers in terms of just social development and developing biblical principles. That is a critical age to not pull away from them. Yeah. You know, I way off topic. I often look at my relationship with students as a teacher of 11th and 12th graders and I really, I'll, I'll just reveal uh, right now the uh, secret sauce to being decently regarded as a teacher. It involves loving the students well and finding ways to do that that aren't necessarily intuitive and ways to do that when the situation appears to call for something else other than loving them. And it requires more effort, more energy, more tact, more careful communication, more time, But I go back to the gospel, and I want to do this every moment of every day, and I do it very imperfectly, but I look at the appeal of the gospel to us. It is God's love for us. We become overwhelmed with that. We probably didn't respond to the gospel because we got really good at checklist living, and we said, wow, I can meet God's standards by checking off all these things, and now I've got this list of 47 things that I'm really good at. I've arrived. That's not what the gospel is about. The gospel is about our, our recognition of our sin, uh, that, that we are lost in our sin, that we are helpless in our sin, and that it is his love for us that sent Christ, sent Jesus Christ to the cross to suffer a cruel death on a cruel Roman cross to conquer our sin and sin and death, and that we access this forgiveness, this justification by faith. And so that recognition that it is God's love for us that didn't look the other way, it didn't ignore us and didn't, didn't condone our sin, required payment for our sin, but recognizing that as we deal with our families, I think is a critical part of learning how to back up and get the big picture concept, the big idea of discipline in the home and what that really should look like. And I think I would add... There are two things I would add about those kind of middle school and teenage years that are so hard is that if you aren't studying the scripture, then you're, you cannot expect that your young teenager is going to study and love God's word either. They need to see you 
doing that. And then as you continue to learn the scripture and grow in God's grace, when you have those hard conversations with your middle schooler and teenager, you have the resource. You have God's word and his promises to fall back on. I can remember many conversations with our daughter when she was just struggling with some social things as they all do in high school. And the thing I would always try to ask her is, what do you think God is trying to teach you through this? Not, oh, you're a victim, you poor thing, you know, but but what is God trying to teach you through this that maybe you want to be sure you don't treat other people that way or, you know, whatever. So that is a good thing to learn. The other thing is we got involved in a ministry at a home that took in adults that were special needs adults. Called the Russell Home. Called the Russell Home. In Orlando. And so in Sarah's high school years, where, where there's a lot of focus on me, 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 we went and spent hours sometimes volunteering there with those adults, meeting those needs. She actually worked in their, their classroom and helped teach them. And that was one of the best things that we could do for her as a teenager, is to show her there are other people that really have needs that you can meet. So I think some things like that are valuable. Yeah, intentionally finding those things. I'll tell you another one that came to my mind as you were talking, and it's one that's easy to take for granted, and that is be involved in a church. And, you know, they're they're imperfect. Every church is imperfect, but be involved in a good Bible-teaching, biblical church, and you can find one. All of evangelicalism isn't going to provide this type of church that I'm referencing, but you can find a church that believes in scripture and, and preaches and teaches it and has the, the right view of the family. And I just remember, I thought about that as you were answering, because I remember Sarah many times would quote the two pastors who come to mind when I say this during her developmental years were R.C. Sproul and uh, Mike Francis. And I remember many times because we worshiped as a family and I'm thankful that I didn't always understand it, but I'm thankful that they didn't pull young people out of the congregation, out of the sanctuary for some separate program, because we would all hear the same teaching. And oftentimes we'd even get in the car and the conversation would start the, why did Dr. Sproul say this? What did that mean? How do we believe as a family? What does scripture really say? And it was the basis for a lot of good conversation that would come up again and again. Yeah. Oh, it definitely did. And I would just encourage in your church, be sure that your children are exposed to the older people in your church, whether that's taking them a meal or talking to them after church. Too many young people, I think, don't have a relationship with some of the older people and all that wisdom that they bring and the different stories that they can tell. And I I think that um, Sarah really enjoyed that. Well, she did a a project. I remember interviewing Roscoe and Helen Smith. Yes. Roscoe Mm -hmm. just passed away not long ago in his nineties and Sarah befriended them and saw the value in them and their lives. And while back in high school, she did a, project where she interviewed them Mm -hmm. so and still maintains a lot of relationships with older people who have lots of wisdom to offer well are there any other 
areas of helpful advice that you'd give for raising godly kids at different stages of development? Is there anything that we haven't talked about that would be important to say for the audience? I can't think of anything right off the top of my head, except I'm thinking of that verse in James, in James 1, that talks about, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask of God who will generously supply that. We just have to ask, and he will generously supply that. He has blessed the family. He has instituted that family. It is something that he is important to him, and it needs to be important and a priority to us too. And you can do this. I just want to encourage you to make it a priority. God will give you the ability It may take some time and learning and effort. It will take time and learning and effort, but it will be worth it a hundredfold. And this is true, just just to be clear, because I want to encourage those in the audience who, who maybe say, well, that sounds so idyllic. I'm such a wretched sinner. I lose my temper. I don't stay focused. I have other priorities. I do this poorly. Or how about this? I have done this poorly. And what about forget? How do I process that with my child? And, and you know, what I would say to that person is you're describing us. You're describing every family. Absolutely. You're, you're that nice little bow on top of life where we skip down the path holding hands, singing a song to hearts and rainbows. Doesn't exist. It isn't real. No. And learn how to recover, how to forgive, how to confess, and realize that trusting God means that we trust God to pick us up and dust us off as we repent. And we're going to do this very, very imperfectly. There are bad habits there are there is bad methodology there are events where we blew it where we you'll look back and say wow i had an opportunity here if i had only done x instead of y or a instead of b i had a wonderful opportunity well in god's economy that opportunity has not been squandered because he is indeed sovereign and there are lessons that can be learned I believe that our children, and you said this early on, you said this at the beginning of this conversation, you didn't say it this way, but they need to see us sweat. They need to see us recover. Absolutely. They need to see, not only do they need to see us pattern biblical Bible reading and study and employing the principles in our lives, for sure they need that. But they also need to see that, that we employ those principles even imperfectly. And learning how to recover from adversity, learning how to recover, learning what sin is and how it permeates our lives and learning how to live this abundant Christian life that is available to us in Christ involves, as a pastor friend of ours told us one time, uh, seeing, letting them see how the sausage is made, you know, well, let, letting them see let them how it see really you works. Weep over sin. I mean, that's they need they need to know that you hate sin too, and in your own life, not just in theirs. And so don't be afraid to let them see you weep over your own sin. And yep. And you know, one other thing that popped into my head is, and you've lived like this, Connie, very well, but I struggle with this, and my students help me with this one. That is, 
realize that their potential is far more than you think it is and mm-hmm. realize that they are capable. And I, I, you know, I'm not suggesting that we'd be reckless with them, but when they get to high school, particularly 11th and 12th grade, they're capable of a lot of adult analysis and behavior and responsibility. And they are more fulfilled when we have that expectation for them. That yes. doesn't mean that we're tiger parents, but it means that we give them latitude and have an expectation and kind of reinforce them taking on more responsibility. You have to do that. Every child is nuanced and no two are exactly alike. And you have to kind of do that you have by to your know own. know your children, but yeah. they will rise to the level of your expectations generally and are happy to do it. Yeah. And being a teacher in a classroom, I have the advantage of just compartmentalized living. You know, I understand it's one thing to do that and have this view in the classroom. It's another to live it 24 seven at home. You know, yeah. it's, it's more, it is more challenging. And the only other thing I thought about when you said, would you add anything is I would say introduce good literature to your children early, really good. Liter- there's well-written children's literature, well-written there's classics. Introduce that to them early. They understand it. They will learn how to be better writers. And if it's above their reading level, I read out loud to Sarah for a long time. And as a result, she's an excellent writer, a good reader. I think that's critical. And I think we lost a lot of that too in, in lately. Yeah. I mean, the way I would say it with her is uh, the richer forms of learning she appreciates yes. even today. Yes. I mean, she has a smartphone and we don't drive a horse drawn carriage, uh, but, but, <laughs> no. but she values the written word yes. and, and uh, well written <laughs> and, and, and understands it yes. and, and knows the difference between good art and bad art. Yes. And, and we enjoy um, theater, high quality theater, not just Shakespeare. Right. Right. <laughs> but, but really not Shakespeare at all, but she is discerning in that regard because she was exposed to good, good literature as a child that was valued and discussed. Well, I hope this has been helpful. We're going to talk more about this as we go along. If this came off like two old people meddling in your lives and telling you how to raise children, uh, we have failed to deliver our point. If this came off as two believers who are flawed, who maybe have experienced some things that could give us insights that would be helpful to you, then we've hit the mark. And so I I hope you hear the spirit with which we've approached this topic. It is a difficult one. It is a challenging one. The family is under attack. We didn't really talk about all the ways the family is under attack. We'll have plenty of opportunities to do that in the future. But thank you for joining us, Mrs. Warren. It is always good to have you here. You You are the highlight of these episodes. Very kind. Well, I'm going to remind you that you said that later. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. I hope if you have uh, enjoyed this episode that you'll come back next week. You can find uh, more information at johnwarrenmedia.com. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. 
Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren. Thank you.